0: Mum, we can hear your music, you'll have to switch it off, it's only going to be 45 minutes or an hour max, sorry about that.
1: Now you should have said Esther,
0: dear husband,
1: would you mind awfully dear husband?
0: I'll try that,
1: dear husband! No not in that shrill voice. Yes. Dear husband. Soft, soft, soft voice. Dear husband,
0: Hello. would you mind refraining from playing that music for a moment while we carry on with our show? No response. I've
1: turned
0: it off. He says he's turned it off, but, you know, he's obviously annoyed.
1: No, say thank you to him in a lovely, soft voice.
0: Tom, mm. thanks for doing that. It's all right. He said it's all right. He
1: didn't mean it, though. You see? <laughs> and then say, I love you, Tom.
0: Tom? Yes? I love you.
1: Thank
0: you. Do you love me? Yes. Yes. He loves me, too. <laughs>
1: <laughs> oh. Long, hot days in the shade of some big old tree. Making daisy chains and watching all the honeybees.
0: Because we're home alone, we've been getting on very calmly and I haven't been much of a fishwife to him. Are you doing naughty things? Naughty
1: things? What do you mean? Mm -hmm. Are you being naughty together? Like Like McCall uh, (laughs) 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 Cunkin.
0: He hasn't swung me from the chandeliers, if that's what you mean. He's not been rotating Mm -hmm. me round on a big sort of wheel or Mm -hmm. anything like that and throwing... throwing knives at me as I go round. Yeah, we're back with the fifth series, Jane.
1: Welcome to the fifth series of Queen Bees. We've got to number five. Yippee! Oh, that's wonderful. Congratulations
0: to us, the Queen Bees of all
1: apps. Isn't that wonderful? It
0: really is.
1: And I hear that you've got a marvellous guest lined up. Can you tell Who this guest is, Esther? This guest is Nicola
0: Bradbear, and she is from the amazing Bees for Development. What's that? It's a company who encourage people in local communities in places like Ghana and Ethiopia and encourage them to make their own money and keep bees in a sustainable way. So welcome, Nicola, and it's so nice that you could come on the podcast.
1: Hello there. So Nicola, what was your entry into beekeeping? I mean, how did you get into bees in the first place?
2: Um, Well, when I was a student, there was meant to be a world food problem. And I mean, we now know there's no real world food shortage, but there's problems with food distribution. But it was also the time of famines around the world. And then, of course, the 1985 famine in Ethiopia and so on. And I wanted to work on finding plant proteins to feed humans with and i worked Mm. on that for a bit but then i realized what i was doing was kind of not really ever going to make a difference to anybody (laughs) i didn't feel it was really hitting the spot and then i went off traveling and i really saw and was interested to see a lot of beekeeping and it really hit me what a widespread useful thing it is, marvellous thing it is going on everywhere at a, a very small scale. And my father had been a beekeeper, so I was interested and knew what to look for. And it really struck me how widespread beekeeping was in poor countries, but there was a lot that could be done to make it more and to help. So that was how I sort of set off on this pathway. (laughs)
1: <laughs> mm. so, your father was a beekeeper, so he must have taught you
2: yes, but I think everyone's got a father or a granddad or an uncle or somebody who was a beekeeper. Mm. I don't oh really I, don't. <laughs> I do I think um, on my
0: French side of the family, um we think that there was a beekeeper there, but probably if you look back, Jane, there probably is somebody, but we we don't know I
2: bet there yeah. is it's it's like in Britain, it wasn't really fashionable. For the second part of the last century. Somehow it missed a few generations, but it's coming back now, which is fantastic. I've been watching you from your show at Chelsea
0: Flower Show, which looked amazing. The garden was just great, wasn't it? The Garden
2: of Arabia. Gosh. How did you get on? Yes, that's right. We had our beehive garden of Arabia with a load of clay beehives. Unfortunately, many, many people thought it was just a giant bee hotel. They didn't quite get that uh, each one of the clay pipes would be home for a honeybee colony. I don't know if they were expecting some great big bee to come out of them or something. (laughs) Can you just describe what they look like then? This is beekeeping in the Middle East and North Africa where there are not really many trees so people use a clay pipe which is made of clay and straw and probably a bit of cow dung or donkey dung to make a mixture like the cob mixture we used to use for houses here. So they would make that into a nice cylinder and then the bees nest naturally inside and these would be placed horizontally. So we know there's evidence of this kind of beekeeping in Turkey in 5000 BC. And people are still doing beekeeping this way today. So that means this technology is 7,000 years old. Um, There's not much else that we're doing today the same way as we did 7,000 years ago. (laughs) It's amazing, isn't it?
1: If you were to look inside the hive of one of these pipes, what
2: kind of, how would the honey and, and the interior look? In a frame hive, we use frames, but in nature... Bees would nest in a hollow tree or a hollow cave and they build their own beautiful combs that they attach to the ceiling of the hive. So, when you do beekeeping with these simple hives, the bees just attach their comb to the ceiling of the hive in the same way as they would in nature, where they attach it to the inside of a tree cavity. Mm. So, you don't have any frames or anything like that. The bees just build their natural comb in the Very natural way. In the Middle East they used to use these clay hives which are horizontal just pipes. So for example in Egypt where there's the Nile running down the Nile Valley, the land on either side of the Nile is very precious because it's irrigated fertile land and by keeping bees in a stack of pipes all stacked up on top of each other that means you could have a lot of bees in a very small space and without wasting any precious land that could be cultivated for crops. So actually very efficient beekeeping and very low cost beekeeping, because the hives don't really need to cost much when you just make them from clay. It's amazing, isn't it?
0: You know, they, I thought when I saw them on the picture, if they looked a bit like large Swiss rolls, I thought. They looked really, <laughs> look great. And I was thinking, oh, you could bite into one of those. It would be just full of honey. But how would you actually extract the honey from that then?
2: So each hive is just a hollow cylinder. And then it's sealed up at each end. The beekeepers just quickly weave a little mat to make the end the hive, the door. Mm -hmm. It's a bit like a placemat, almost a woven mat over each end. Mm -hmm. So normally all the entrances would be at one side of the stack of hives. And, you know, the same as in a frame hive, the bees always build their brood nest near to the entrance and then they store their honey away from the entrance so that it's away from predators. So in these pipes the bees will have their brood nest near to the entrance and then they will store honeycombs away from the entrance so actually the beekeeper it's very easy for the beekeeper the beekeeper just goes to the back of the stack takes off the back of the hive and then reaches in to cut out the honeycombs and these pipes are each about a meter long So the tradition is that the beekeeper would cut combs as far as his or her elbow, and that would mean that he would just harvest some honeycombs, but leave the majority of the honey for the bees. Oh, wow. Do the beekeepers wear suits? No, not much. Not much. This is low-tech beekeeping. It's easy for the beekeeper because the beekeeper's standing at the back of all the hives, and they might use a little bit of smoke and the bees would go out of the entrance, which, of course, is the other side of the stack. These these beehives form almost like a wall, you see. So the entrance is all on the other side of the wall of beehives. So it's pretty easy beekeeping, I would say. Wow. How did it all start? I started Bees for Development nearly 30 years ago now as an organisation to focus entirely on helping beekeepers in developing countries and before that i had worked at something called the international bee research association and at uh, cardiff university uh, but then i started bees development to be just totally focused on this very interesting subject of how to help people in the poorest countries to do beekeeping
0: and where did which country did you start, and how did you approach these communities?
2: Oh, um, I can hardly remember now where we started. Um, <laughs> we do two things. One of the things that we do is provide a free information service to beekeepers all around the developing world, because beekeeping such a funny subject. It doesn't quite fit into all the other categories. Where do you put beekeeping? Is it animal production? Is it in food production? Is it in horticulture? Because bees pollinate plants. But on the other hand, bees are insects. So maybe beekeeping should be in animal production. But then in many countries, beekeeping is practiced in forests. So it should be in forestry. And most government departments of entomology are concerned with killing insects like locusts, not dealing with beneficial insects like bees. So beekeeping... It's this funny subject that doesn't fit in very well. So very often the beekeepers don't really have any help to turn to. For example, in Britain, you know, we have the British Beekeepers Association and things that all help beekeepers. But in many countries, there's nothing like that. So we set off to kind of provide that service and we still do that today. We send magazines and training posters and boxes of training materials to about 130 countries around the world, and we send it free. So if there's a training course or something, we always send them free materials. And then we also have our own community projects where we actually are doing the training and helping the most poor people to escape from poverty by means of beekeeping. In Uganda, we're doing amazing amazing work with these people with disabilities who cannot see and others who cannot hear it's really tough for these people because they always get left behind whenever there's some training or some initiative or something these people are left behind and missed out because nobody really knows how to cope with them so in Uganda we've made a huge effort with the with our partners that we work with to involve people uh, with disabilities. And you might think, how on earth can they do beekeeping? (laughs) But they can do beekeeping. And it's been a fantastic success. We've really helped some people to escape from the poverty that they're stuck in.
0: So you might go into a community and help people, set them up, train them up as a beekeeper and then that might help them get some work so they can sell their honey and and help their community rather than do something else that might be detrimental to the community. Yes,
2: absolutely. That's what we do. Absolutely. We work with the very poorest people and our thing is that always you can more or less make a beehive for nothing. And of course, the bees are available free and the bees feed themselves on (laughs) flowers and flora. You don't need to feed bees. So the most poor people can actually do beekeeping without any start-up costs. And all we do is give them the skills to do that. And then they can harvest honey. And honey's just the most amazing product because in every society, every culture really places value on honey so it doesn't matter how poor you are you can produce this good product that actually everywhere has a good market value doesn't matter how cheap your beehive was the honey's as good as any honey that any of the rest of us could harvest so they get quite a, a decent price do they for their honey there's a good market for local honey everywhere and of course, if they don't sell it, they can eat it, which is <laughs> it's a highly nutritious food. And for people, if they're very poor and they've got a very limited diet, honey really comes into its own as, you know, very special food, high carbohydrate and full of all sorts of trace minerals. I, I know I've heard you talking about honey <laughs> on your podcast what a wonderful product it is. Mm, we love honey. Oh. Well, yes, quite right. So <laughs> very it's a wonderful thing how even the poorest people can produce absolute top quality honey and beeswax which is the other really wonderful high value Product that they harvest as well because our beekeepers are always harvesting a whole comb not in a frame hive you would uncap the frame and spin out the honey and put the empty comb back into the hive but when you use a simple hive you harvest the whole combs so people then have honey and beeswax for sale and what would they be using the
1: beeswax for
2: oh well if we think about africa for a minute the beeswax that you can harvest from bees in Africa is so clean because the beekeepers are not using any medicines in their bees so you can harvest beeswax that's much cleaner than beeswax here there's no residues in it so actually that beeswax is what the cosmetics companies want because it's the most clean pure organic beeswax uh, Mm -hmm. available so what we encourage beekeepers to do and and beeswax is a great product because it doesn't really go off <laughs> as long as you as long as you keep it clean you can accumulate it until you have enough to trade and then we get beekeepers working together so that they might between them have half a ton of beeswax and then a trader will be willing to come and buy a good volume like that Ooh. so actually beeswax finds a very good market and In many ways, it's an easier product than honey because it's not a food. And, you know, the criteria for trading honey are higher than the criteria for trading beeswax. But Nicola,
0: what about varroa and and brood diseases and stuff like that? I mean, do they use
1: chemicals?
2: No, I'm afraid (laughs) the the beekeeping is what we call natural beekeeping. Um, Varroa is everywhere really now. But neither the bees nor the beekeepers really have problems with Varroa because the Varroa arrived um, without anybody really noticing it. And then the bees evolved in the presence of the Varroa. So the bees survive perfectly well in the presence of Varroa. And nobody's using any treatments. Wow. And...
0: <laughs> have they got Apis mellifera or have they got a different type of honeybee
2: there? Spencer depends who we're talking about. All of Africa is the same mm-hmm. species of honeybee as here. But in Asia, there are other species of apis. So there's Asian species, apis, serrana, apis, dorsata. And these are different honeybees to our honeybee. But even in Africa, the species of bees are the same, but the behavior is different. Tropical bees behave quite differently to bees living here. For example... If you're a tropical honeybee colony and you're disturbed by ants or something, you can abscond because you can find a new place and start to build a nest. But here, you know, if our bees absconded at this time of year, they wouldn't have time to recover before winter arrives. So the bees in the tropics are more prone to absconding and moving about and being mobile. Our own bees here in the UK, because they have to cope with a long winter, they have to really store their honey and batten down the hatches, don't they?
0: So that's interesting. For disease, I mean, that must mean that really they can move away from their brood and sort of leave most of the varroa, or they could leave their brood disease and sort of cleansing themselves in a way, couldn't they? So maybe that's why they're healthier.
2: That's right. And also they swarm, you see. Yeah. Swarming really is the self-cleaning part of the Mm. bees behavior the new swarm is the loveliest cleanest (laughs) baby colony that has no pathogens so it's a bit different beekeeping (laughs) i'd so love to go
0: and see it all would you jane
1: Mm, yes absolutely So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 upfront for three months
0: plus taxes and fees. Promo for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com.
2: I know I'm really biased, but I think beekeeping is just the best way to help people because you know, once you become a beekeeper, you become a bit of a botanist, don't you? You really care about the habitat and protecting it. And yeah. so the people we work with, they become invested in their habitat and ensuring it's retained. So we do a lot of tree planting and reforestation and things. Mm, yeah. And these communities are really, as I say, invested in, in ensuring that that the environment stays good and that trees are not cut down and that forage is left for their bees. Because every every beekeeper is interested in what their bees are feeding on.
1: Absolutely, yeah. Can you um, give us some of the environments that bees love in the countries that you work in?
2: Tropical forests are wonderful for beekeeping. We really believe that it's the beekeepers that are the guardians of the forest, actually, because the beekeepers are doing their beekeeping in the forest and are actually the local people that are most interested to protect it. And they're not taking anything out of the forest. Beekeeping is not extractive. It's just beneficial. The bees are maintaining the biodiversity and pollinating the forest. But tropical uh, forest honey is usually very tasty and dark honey, very special um, <laughs> delicious. Actually, just talking about it makes me think <laughs> how delicious it is. <laughs> and I, I, uh, in the olden days, I used to take a jar of my honey from here to Africa, and people would taste it and say, "Oh, that's disgustingly sweet." Uh, so I stopped taking it after a bit because I realised it wasn't ever appreciated. It, but I think as as you go further north, honey becomes lighter and whiter and sweeter Mm. and as you go south towards the tropics honey gets darker and tastier actually Mm. and very often that is tree honey. Mm. I don't know whether you tried that Jane but we had some
0: honey from Madagascar and oh my god I mean it was so there was one eucalyptus one one was um you know, like lychee honey. Mm-hmm. And the other one was this, oh, I can't remember it now, new jar or newly honey or something. Anyway, it was so weird. It was so <laughs> weird. Like you say, it wasn't sweet. It was like rich and, yes. you know, yes. earthy. But yes. these tree honeys are fascinating, aren't they? And when you were saying about these, in the Egyptian times, these um, pipes... I don't know what they used in the pyramids, but they they obviously extracted honey
2: then, didn't they? They did. They did. And they used to put the beehives on barges going up and down the Nile, amazingly. How did they do that, though? (laughs) Well, I don't know, but they they did. They did. They did migrate the bees up and down the Nile. Well, they needed the bees to pollinate their crops, just the same as we do now. Exactly the same. But you know what, Nicola, when
0: you said about these um, bees in places where it might, there might not be any forests, are those bees like brought to that area or where would... I'm just thinking in the natural world, like if a bee would live in a tree, so honeybees would live in a tree. So in that sort of environment, is that a natural place for honeybees or is it just for, you know, farming them?
2: Wherever on earth there are flowering plants, then there are bees there. So if there's there's flowering plants somewhere, there will be some bees. They may not be the same bees as we have here, but there will be some bees there. And so if it's a desert area, you would find the flowering plants in the wadis where there's some water. And you'd find the bees there. And if there's no trees, the bees be nesting in caves. Oh, yeah. And even in Botswana, They nest under the ground very commonly where there's no trees, it's dry and the bees are in holes underground. So they nest in different places according to the habitat. But if there are flowering plants, there will always be bees there. In the tropics, it can be also stingless bees, which are different from our bees, but they also store honey. I'm
0: so fascinated by those ones.
2: Wherever these bees are, the humans there have figured out a way of managing them and harvesting from them because long ago, honey was all that people had it by way of a sweet food. And um, and is it sort of even the spread
1: between men and women, the beekeeping?
2: No, I think it's true to say that in many places it's seen as a male activity. Ooh. For example, in Africa, where it's beekeeping in forests, The men would go off and camp in the forest, or they still do, they go and camp in the forest for maybe a fortnight and do other things. They might be collecting mushrooms and seeds and honey, do the beekeeping at the same time. Mm -hmm. And of course, that's not really socially acceptable or possible for women to go and camp away from home. So it has been a male activity in some places, but very often then honey would be brought home and then looking after it becomes a female activity, actually. Um, For example, brewing beer or brewing tej, the wine in Ethiopia, that's always women's job. And also trading those products is very often done by women. There's amazing trade in beeswax, which women do in Africa, often responsible for that. So it's
1: shared, but in a kind of different way.
2: Yes, that's right. You've been very
0: hands-on with this right from the beginning. Do you find yourself in these communities yourself, or have you got a lot of people working with your charity?
2: <laughs> yes. I mean, in in the olden days, if I can put it that way, I used to go there and we used to go there, but nowadays we are trying not to go on planes anymore And so we have local teams. So in Ethiopia, it would be Beast for Development Ethiopia. And that's completely Ethiopian people that are doing the training and running everything. That's one good outcome of COVID, actually. We talk to them every day as if they're in the room next door. (laughs) So we can manage our projects and raise money for them. But we don't really need to go there much nowadays, which is very good because one day they won't need our support anymore. They'll carry on without us. Yeah.
0: Have you got any places in the world where you'd really still like to to go, you know, and and take (laughs) bees for development too?
2: Well, right now, Afghanistan, I'm really worried about the beekeepers there. You know, of course, there are lots of very good beekeepers in Afghanistan. And of course, you never, ever hear about them in the news. I'm thinking of them and wondering how they're getting on. Mm. But beekeeping is... You know, when times are tough, it's so good because people can carry on doing it and they can go on harvesting honey, whatever bad situation there is. You know, it's just reminded me, I did this
0: um, work for this company and and we were working with refugees and we had like 14 people who came Mm -hmm. and I sort of showed them how to build frames. And it was a language learning activity that it was showing them the bees and building frames and sort of talking about life in the hive and it was so interesting out of 14 of those people mm-hmm. who were refugees from around the world 10 of them either knew about beekeeping or had somebody in their family that was a beekeeper yes,
2: yes that's so absolutely right absolutely right it's a funny subject it's always a very small scale thing But it's so widespread. Rural people really, really know about beekeeping far more than has. You know, being the situation in Britain in recent years, we've kind of forgotten it for a few generations. But in poor societies, it's so much more commonplace. It Was really like preaching
0: to the converted, and it was it was very moving actually. And mm. there was one young lady, and she said that every year her mum—it's a bit like the clay pipe thing. She said that her mum had this pot, and she used to get bees in it, and then at the end of the summer, she smashed the pot to get the honey oh, out, and that gosh. was. I know it's quite brutal, but that's what she's.
2: Yes, yeah. How interesting! I can sort of explain that. That could be in West Africa, or it could be in Ethiopia or Eritrea, where people do use clay pots, and then they almost add another clay pot, a bit like a super. Oh. And the bees would then build, you know, in the good season, fill that super up with honeycomb. And then you would smash it to get the honey out. It's just like a water pot. So it's a round water pot with a narrow mouth. So you would have to smash it to get the honey out. But it's a super. Ooh. It's not where the brood nest would be. How interesting. Ooh, I know.
0: <laughs> and I was stood there, like, listening to this. And I was like, what? It
2: sounded so yes. incredible, you know. Yeah. Yes. It's really... But then the... It, um, the British way of beekeeping is not the way everybody's doing beekeeping by a long chalk. <laughs> I don't know. Presumably they use
1: the honey as well for medicinal purposes.
2: Oh, uh, yes, so much. It's amazing in poor countries. People don't eat honey like we do, just slathered on toast. In Ethiopia I was thinking you can buy honey by the spoonful in the market. And it's kind of tonic food. So maybe an old person or someone who's poorly or pregnant woman, they might have a spoonful of honey as a tonic.
1: I was going to ask you how they sold it, you know. I mean, do they sell it in sort of jars like we sell it?
2: Yes, actually, getting containers is always a bit of a thing. We don't provide jars. Again, you have to use what's there. Plastic bags nowadays, very good for honey sometimes honey can be wrapped in a leaf with some comb Ooh. honey in because these are usually simple hives uh, where you cut out a comb you see quite often people are eating honey comb and not uh, strained honey not filtered honey right
1: yes uh-huh.
2: and the good thing is if you have honeycomb you absolutely know that is pure honey nobody's messed about with it very good Ooh, nicola when you say that
0: it's making me quite emotional now it's just like when you say that somebody will go to the market and have one teaspoon of honey you know for like yes. a, a medicinal purpose and you just think god we're we're all like scoffing ourselves stupid yes. aren't we yes. in, you know and you just think yes. God, that's the real value of honey yes. one little spoonful of something so Beautiful
2: and pure. Absolutely. Absolutely. And honey is much more remembered in poor societies as a medicine. And even the word medicine is very interesting, you know, because the word for honey is usually an M word, mod, miel, madu. Mm. We have the word in mead. But there is a school of thought that medicine came from mead, you know, the first...
1: The first oh, wow.
2: medicine was honey. Ooh, ooh, ooh. That's good, isn't it? Yeah, yeah. yeah because it yeah. was. It was. That was what people had, and honey is medicinal. In Zanzibar, there's a hospital, and outside there, there's just people selling honey as by the spoonful, as a tonic for people in hospital. That's a very common common sight. Right, how amazing. And what about the propolis? Do they use that at all? Yes, yes, a lot. Propolis is wonderful stuff. (laughs) (laughs) Especially for if you get a hole in your tooth, then propolis works a treat, actually, because it is a little bit anaesthetic. If you put a tiny bit of propolis on your tongue, you can immediately feel it as anaesthetic. Um, So it keeps the Mm. honeybee colony nice and clean and it keeps your mouth clean as well. So... So definitely, propolis is also a useful thing for sealing up holes in things, cracks in water pots and things like that. Very useful product, propolis. Yeah. (laughs) If you can get a little
1: bit more propolis than we got, Esther, then uh, I don't don't, don't think we'll be building walls or filling in teeth with with the amount we produced.
2: But propolis is wonderful stuff. If you make a little tincture of it in a bit of... Vodka or something well, yes Well
1: we did that On, on one of our podcasts
2: Yes I was just thinking that. To, um, <laughs> to get a very tiny amount
1: um, <laughs> uh, How's it going Esther Anyway our tincture Oh yes it's
0: going I don't think it'll be any uh Filling any holes in pots Or cracks in doors <laughs> It's just made me think you know when you say it you could use it in in these poor countries where people have got nothing if so if, if they had a hole in the tooth, they would put the propolis in
2: oh definitely, definitely. I would do that as well. It's jolly good, <laughs> Ooh, <laughs> good. just try it if you've got toothache, just put a little wedge of propolis in your mouth. it's very nice. Ooh, Nicola. I think this is a
0: wonderful project. I'm, I'm so glad that you've come to talk to us about it and that
2: mm.
1: if
0: there's any way we can get involved in it, we'd love to, wouldn't we, Jane?
1: Yes, yeah, a bee charity, definitely. Yeah, <laughs> That's you have Thank been you. doing an amazing job for the last 30 years. Fantastic.
2: <laughs> and would you ever
1: consider working with poorer communities in the UK?
2: Yes, absolutely. I mean, some of our work over the years has been with people in very difficult social situations. Um, I'm thinking of beekeepers in tough places like Chechnya, where people had been put to live with people of different ethnicity to their own. And actually, when these people became beekeepers, it suddenly gave them some social status. Yes. Which really helped them to become integrated where they were living. And certainly nowadays for people here you know if you once you become a beekeeper it does give you some social standing in a community it's it's not like if you're just someone that grows well I don't want to say the wrong thing here but it's different from being a a tomato grower or something being a beekeeper does give you a kind of identity in a community and then as I said already honey in every society is appreciated Every, every society on earth values honey and likes it a jar of honey is a different thing from a jar of jam or a jar of peanut butter it's a very special wholesome food Mm. would you say that it's given you social standing Esther on your allotment
1: (laughs) Are, are you are you are you miss big on your allotment because of your um your abuse Oh, yeah, I'm
0: very big. I'm enormous, Jane. I'm very big in the local community. So, Nicola, before you go,
1: how could people donate towards your charity?
2: Well, people help us in all sorts of funny ways. Of course, they do sponsored runs. We had a a sponsored bee run organised for us where people all ran in, you know, stripey outfits and things. Um, So people raise funds in all sorts of ways, but they can also help us as volunteers for events. Like last week, we've been at Chelsea Flower Show and we had lovely volunteers helping us stand on the stand and, and, you know, talk to the public. So there's lots of ways to help us. Be at the honey show, so we'll get to meet you. Great! I
0: might have propolis all over my teeth when I get there, and I'll be, <laughs> Me too. um, yeah. Me yeah. Too. <laughs> and I'll be eating a large bee sausage roll. Um, <laughs> good because <laughs> they good. do look a bit like sausage rolls as well, don't they? Those the, or Swiss rolls <laughs> or sausage rolls that's what they look uh, like, I think those they pipes. look more like
2: brandy snaps actually
0: oh they do yeah brandy snaps that's very good my grandma used to
1: fill in with cream oh they're delicious <laughs> thank you so much for coming on and being our guests and uh, all the information that you've shared with us today has been just brilliant i'm sure our listeners will will be falling in right left and center
2: <laughs> <laughs> thank you ladies it's lovely to be with you <laughs> we'll see you at the honey
0: show nicola
2: super you can come to our quiz which is like a tradition that on the friday evening of the honey show we have a quiz and uh, bill turnbull always comes and he's the quiz master and it's just it's just fun quiz it's not serious it's
0: good to have someone serious on this show nicola (laughs) okay
2: (laughs) anyway i love your podcast it's really good great well thank you so much Thank, Thank you. Thank you. Shall I hang up? <laughs> <laughs> you can buzz off now. I'll buzz off. Bye, now. Nicola. <laughs> I gone. <on>. Bye. <laughs>
0: Oh, well, that was lovely. It was such a lovely episode and it was mm. so, so nice. Lovely. Have you had your tea? I've had my tea. Yeah, I had it before the show. So um, I'm just going to have a spoonful of honey. Oh, I might even, I'm only going to have one spoonful, though. Yes, I'm
1: on going one spoonful as well. Well, enjoy your spoonful of honey. And you and, enjoy your uh, spoonful of honey. Will do. And to the next time, dear Essie.
0: Yeah, I can't wait. Oh, I love you, Jane. Have a good week.
1: Yeah, I love you too and you too. All right then. Bye. 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 And I'll call you up whenever I'm feeling down.
0: Queen Bees is written and created by Esther Coles and Jane Horrocks. It is produced by Claire Broughton, Andy Goddard and John Wakefield and partly recorded at the Hives on my allotment near Crouch End in London. Our title music is Sweet Nothing by Amy May Ellis and Will Cookson. Don't forget to follow us on Instagram at Queen Bees Pod for pictures and videos from The Hive. Queen Bees is a hat-trick podcast. It feels so good just to
2: have you around.